first couple of chapters deal with Jesus' infancy, zero to probably three, four years old. Chapter three, fast forwards about 25 years. We don't know anything about Jesus between the time he was a toddler and when he was uh, entering public ministry at 30 years old, except for one little scene in Luke where we see him as the 12-year-old in the temple. Those years, they're lost to us for whatever reason. If you believe the Bible's inspired, God just, it wasn't, we didn't need to know. It wasn't anything uh, that was, uh, I guess, relevant for us in terms of understanding who Jesus is, so we skip past that. We need to know about his birth. That really speaks to who he is, and then we pick up in chapter 3 with this public ministry. Today we're going to look at John the Baptist, who was uh, kin to Jesus, second cousin, third cousin, something like that. He was kin to him in some way. His birth was also miraculously uh, foretold by an angel. Uh, His conception was miraculous as well. And uh, he has a very specific role to play in what God is doing uh, in the world at this time. His job is to prepare the way for Jesus. And so we're going to pick up chapter 3, verse 1. Again, this is about 25 years after the close of chapter 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So a little background. Uh, We're actually not going to look at the message of John the Baptist today because his message and Jesus' message was the same. John, his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. When you flip to Matthew 4.17, the message of Jesus is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are are synonyms. So we're going to look at that when we get to uh, the words coming out of Jesus' mouth. What we want to look at today is this sense of calling that John had and how that lays on top of our life. But a little background before. So, again, John was born to a priestly family. Uh, His birth was miraculous. His parents were too old to conceive. An angel appeared to Zechariah, his dad, in the temple and said, you're going to have a boy. Here's what you're going to name him, and here's the thing. Here's the life that he's going to live. Uh, From what we can tell, his, his parents, they were elderly. They seemed to have died at some point when he was relatively young. It appears that he was raised in the desert. And at some point, he begins this public ministry. He begins to preach, and these massive crowds come to him. He's hugely popular. People are coming to him. He's preaching these, from what we can tell, these pretty convicting, very direct sermons. Uh, People are responding to these sermons by publicly confessing their sins, and then as an outward sign of an inward uh, repentance and transformation in their heart, they're being baptized in the Jordan River. So it's this uh, pretty big spectacle. I don't mean that in a negative way. There's this huge crowd, and there's a lot of activity around what John is doing. At some point, the religious leaders take note. 
and uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees who were religious leaders come out to him. We don't know if they were coming just out of curiosity, if they're coming to shut him down, if they're coming to ride on this coat. We don't know why they're coming, but they come out there, and John's response to them is he sees them as hypocrites. And so he says, listen, y'all can't be a part of this unless you're going to truly repent, and there needs to be evidence of your repentance. And that's a biblical concept. There's outward evidence of inward transformation. And John says that's going to be the same for y'all. He preempts their response to him, which is, we don't need to repent. We're good. Abraham is our father. We're one of his descendants. He says, God can make descendants of Abraham out of rock, of Abraham out of his rocks. What he's looking for is your personal response to him. If you've not responded personally to him, then you're on the wrong side of the fence. And then he begins to speak about Jesus as the one coming as a judge. There's this picture of winnowing. So uh, you've got this pile of grain. You have a pitchfork. You throw the grain up into the air uh, like this. It's windy. Chaff is very light. It blows away. Wheat is a little um, more dense, and it would fall back to the ground. So that was a way of cleaning your wheat. And he says, that's the one coming after me we know is Jesus. That's what he's going to do. He's coming to judge. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That speaks to conversion. When we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is given to us. Paul says in Ephesians, he's a deposit that's given to us, guaranteeing our inheritance. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about being baptized in the Spirit as that's what connects us, that's what grafts us into the family of God, the body of Christ. So he's speaking to conversion there. Or we're baptized with fire, which speaks to H-E double hockey sticks. So those are your two things that are going on there. You're either baptized in the Spirit, and so you're and you're saved, or you're baptized with fire or in fire, and you're not. And the your eternal destination is based on your response to this one who's coming after John. Uh, roads at that time were not very well kept, and uh, it was expensive to fix one. And the only reason you would fix a road is if royalty was going to be treading upon it soon. So this idea of John saying, "Let's make straight paths," what they would have heard is there's a king coming soon. And so we need to get things ready for this king who's going to be walking down this road. So that was John's ministry. It was this message of ministry of preparation, this message of repentance in order to prepare people for Jesus coming after. Again, we're going to look more specifically at this idea of repentance and the kingdom of heaven coming near in a couple of weeks. This morning what I want us to do is focus on John's calling these good works that God has created for him. If you've been at church here for a long, you've heard us talk about doing your deal. It's this calling that God's placed on your life, these good works, according to Ephesians 2.10, that he's created for you to do. It's God's will for your life. Whatever terminology you want to use, there's this idea that God didn't just create us. He also created a life for us. And with John, we can see very some things very clearly because his life is compressed. There's only a handful of verses that deal with him. And we can see how this plays out in the life of a man uh, that I think can encourage us in some ways. So a couple of quick things from John. First thing you can see from these first uh, several verses is that John's deal was part of God's larger deal. And that's how it is for all of us. God has a cosmic plan that he's unfolding, and each of us has a part to play in that plan. Your response may be, an angel didn't appear to my dad and tell him what to name me. I've not prophesied about in the Old Testament. All of those things are true for all of us. We're not, that, that's not the life that we live. Most of us, we're not miracle babies in, a, in really in any sense. We're just regular. 
we're regular people and our parents came up with our names for whatever reason and we just kind of, we're just here. And it can make us feel like, you know, I, I really don't have a part to play. When I read through the Bible, I see all of these people who are who get remembered, they're set apart in a way that I wasn't marked, the way in a way that I wasn't consecrated, in a way that I wasn't set apart from birth. And that's just not true. You might, your birth might not have been foretold, but that doesn't make it an accident. And your life might not have been written about in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that God did not have plans and purposes for you when he knit you together in your mother's womb. He did. He did 100%. And when you can begin to get that in your heart, that there's purpose for your life, it will change the way you approach Monday and Thursday and every day in between. What we see here with John, here's your thing, John. You're going to prepare the way for my son who's coming after you. That's the part that you're going to play in this larger context of what I'm doing in the world. Acts 1.8 says this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A couple of ways you can try to begin to think about, well, what's the part that I play? Some of you, you already know it. That's great. For some of you, you're, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what my role is. I don't know why I'm here. I don't have that. And so a couple of questions that you can ask yourself looking at Acts 1-8 as a template. For some of you, the question is what? The Bible says, Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. And so the question is, well, what are you a witness to? Well, we're a witness to the fact that the kingdom of God is now is near. It's accessible to us. We can enter in to the kingdom of God. And there's mo- there are lots of uh, aspects to that. There's the, the gospel is multifaceted. And we can all witness to different aspects of that. Here's just a list of some different things. These are just a few that I thought of off the top of my head. And there's easily a dozen more. For some of you, you, you're a witness to the fact that Jesus came to reconcile. Jesus came to bring parties who are estranged together. Us and God and us and us. If people constantly come to you and they're in having relational difficulties, this might be your thing. This might be one of the reasons you're put on the earth is because you help bring parties who are at war back into reconciled relationship. You bring peace in relationship. And you can talk about forgiveness and speaking the truth and love and grace and mercy. And all of these things fall underneath this umbrella of reconciliation. But that might be your deal. You're a witness to the fact that God is a reconciling God. Justice. In the Bible, justice has much more to do with what's right than with what's fair. And if you're constantly saying, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. When you read the paper and you're walking through the your school, whatever, if you're constantly saying that's just not right, you may be a justice person. And it could very well be that your thing is you witness to the fact that Jesus has come to make things right. Not to make things equal, but to make things right. That his kingdom is one of justice and righteousness. And you're a witness to that. Grace, very simple to me. Very simple expression that's very powerful. Uh, If your thing is hospitality, if that's part of how God has made you, and you welcome people into your home and into your life. If you're doing it the way Jesus said, it's an expression of grace. If you're not inviting someone into your house so they can then invite you to their beach house next summer, but if you're inviting them into your house, just they can't, like Jesus says, invite people in who can't pay you back. Just you invite them in, not because they can help you make a connection or make a deal. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not hospitality. That's networking. 
They're two different things. When it comes to hospitality, you're just inviting people in for the sake of connecting. You're, you've prepared food for them. That's grace. You're giving them something that they don't deserve. It's, a, it's literally grace that you can eat. Very powerful expression of grace, which for us is a difficult concept to grasp. It's not very tangible. Hospitality is, is, is a concrete expression of that. That might be what you're a witness to. And you don't need to sell yourself short if that's what you're a witness to. You're not Billy Graham. Nobody, it doesn't matter. You're a witness to this truth that God is gracious, that he gives us things that we don't deserve, that he invites us into relationship with him. Read through the Bible all of the pictures of relationship with God that center around eating at a table. And when you do that with others, when you invite them in, those are lived parables. Folks, that might be what you're a witness to. You might be a witness to beauty. Some of you make stuff, and it's and and God makes things, and the things that God makes are beautiful. And Jesus has come to remake things that are marred and are broken. And so that might be you. You might be a witness to the beauty of God, joy. A lot of times we're seen as people who boycott and protest and grimace and complain and gripe, and our mass forwards are all about the world coming to an end. We don't have. Jesus said, I came to, that you would have fullness, of, or that in him is fullness of joy. And he came that we would have abundant life. And there are a lot of guys who are on the outside looking in going, There's, I, why would I want to be a part of what you're doing? You never smile. You're never happy. Uh, Brian Coley, is he in here? I thought I saw him. Yeah, he made a movie, like a real movie with actors, and it's going to be in a theater, we hope, and all of this. And we went and saw it the other day, and it was legitimately funny. Not grade on a curve because a Christian made it funny, but a legitimate, funny movie. I thought, yeah, that's, yes, yes. That means some of you, that's what you're a witness to. You're a witness to the fact that God is full of joy and that in Jesus there's joy. And you're the life of the party kind of guy or girl and, and you're social and you do all of those things. That can be a witness to joy. And that's a huge aspect of the kingdom coming for some it's servanthood you make you, you do things you meet needs you're practical and helpful and all of those things you're a witness to the fact that jesus didn't come to be served but to serve there are others of those we all have a facet that we witness to and what we tend to do is we trivialize our part because it's easy and for some reason we've decided if it's easy then it's insignificant only hard things matter and so we constantly um, neglect the things that God has put in us, trivialize, downplay the things that God has put in us because they're too easy. And we try to be who we're not, and we get frustrated, and we quit. doesn't make any sense. There are thing, the, the, way, the things that God wants you to be a witness to are going to fit with who you are. It's not going to be difficult for you to witness. Some of you are creative by nature. It's not difficult for you to witness to the beauty of who God is. That's death for me. I can't draw a triangle. So it doesn't work at all. That's not, and so for me to try to be that, it's not, it's going to be fruitless. It's not going to make anybody think God creates good things. You can think God teaches remedial art. That's what it's going to come through if I'm the witness to it. But there are other things that I can be a witness to that maybe you can't. God is infinite, and to think that any of us as finite people are going to be a complete reflection of him, it's just arrogant, and it's wrong. That's why there's all of us 
who are in, who are part of this, and why it's we each have a part to play. We'll get to that in a minute. A, the, another question. It might not be a what question for you. It might be a where question. What does he say? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And for you, those geographic places don't mean that much to us. That one on the right maybe makes more sense. So for some of you, it's not a what question, it's a where. God has called you to your people. And it's not just your blood family, it's the folks who are in your tightest circle. And that's where you do your thing right now. God has called, said that's where you need to focus. It's Jerusalem for you, which can be the most difficult place in the world because those people see you all the time and they know you screw up. They know you don't live what you say all the time. And so our tendency can be to pull back from those folks. Those are the people who can hurt us the most. And so sometimes we, desire, we don't engage with them significantly. But for some of you, that's, that's the where. It's not a what, it's a where. Judea, that's your kind of loose uh, social world. It's your neighborhood, your school, it's where you go to work. So for me, it's been a where question for the past five years. It's been the square. That's been the thing for me for the past five years. That's been my deal. It's been, where am I supposed to be? Much more so than what am I supposed to be doing, it's where am I supposed to be? And that may or may not change over the next few months or years, but that's been it for me, and it could be the same thing for you. You're feeling stirred in this, again, kind of your loose social world, not necessarily the people who are your best friends, but people who you interact with, maybe, maybe we could say casually, uh, on a regular basis. Samaria, that's folks who are culturally different from you. That might be where you're feeling some calling. It could be going to Atlanta to do particular types of ministry. It could be that you. It could be the school where your kids are in. That is. That's. There's some diversity there, and you. I need to connect with folks who are different from me culturally. And then ends of the earth. That's the nations. That's an international thing. Zach, who was just playing the drums. It's a where thing for him. He's going to Turkey. He and his wife and his brother and his wife. They're they're going. And so that's the where issue for them and so that could be for you it's not so much what but where either way just can help you start thinking about where's what's your role what's the part that you need to be playing right now second thing you see john shaped his life around his deal where he lived desert what he wore camel's hair what he ate locusts and wild honey none of that to me is appealing who wants to live in a desert not me who wants to wear camel's hair not me who wants to eat grasshoppers not me but that's, that, he's not being a hero. It's not like, oh, John, he sacrificed so much. That's not how God sees it. Here's the thing that I want for you, John. You're going to prepare, a, this is your ministry. It's this, you're going to preach this pretty stark message of repentance. You're going to baptize people. And these were the things that came with that. God's expectation is that we're going to create a lifestyle that's conducive or appropriate to uh, the grace that he's given us. He wants your lifestyle to fit with your deal. For, and this is the rub for a lot of us. It's easy to dream. It can be difficult to do. Because for some of us, we have a capacity issue. I'm talking about what are you going to do. You heard Bo pray about what are we going to do. And you're thinking, I, I don't have time to do anything. I don't have time to do what I'm doing, much less add anything else. It's a capacity issue. And so this idea of doing your deal, it just stays up here for you which either causes guilt because you're not doing it or you just maybe a little bit of comfort that you know, well, I could once A, B, C, and D are taken care of. It's a capacity thing. For others of us, it's the fact that as long as it stays in our head, then nobody has to know. 
But once I begin to do things, then I might be that guy or that girl. And I don't want to be that guy or that girl. We're not ready for prime time. We're not ready for public yet. Let's keep everything in my head, and that way it doesn't ruffle anybody out here. It doesn't cause any ripples. There's no good influence, but there's also no resistance. Nothing necessarily has to change. God's expectation is that we will create a lifestyle conducive to the things that he's called us to do. Easy example. If you're that grace person, it's hospitality for you. You can't do that if you're always in your car, unless you're going to invite us in there. It doesn't work. You can't. So at some point, something has to give. If you feel like my thing is to invite people into my home and you are never in your home, how does that work? And then you can list all of the things that you have to do. And I say this with no judgment and, well, actually not really with compassion either. Just for the statement that it is. I don't, it doesn't matter. Something has to give. That's just how it, once God says this is the thing for you, he's God. And his expectation is you're going to begin to shape things around that. I don't want to live in a desert. I don't care. I want to eat something else. It's not that he doesn't care in a flippant way. There's just so much bigger things that he's got going. His prime concern is not our comfort. His prime concern is accomplishing his will. If we have to experience some discomfort along the way, then so be it. Paul shipwrecked and thrown in jail and stoned and hungry and all of those things, and none of those things make him a hero because he suffered for his faith. Those were just the, uh, that was just some of the, the results of some of the fallout of being obedient. It just kind of comes with it for him. For some of us, it won't, we won't experience those types of things. But God's expectation is you're going to shape your life around what I've given you. I've told y'all, easiest example I can think of in our church is Daniel and Katie White. God's called us to foster. So I'm going to resign my job. Okay. And like in God's mind, she, she's not a hero. They're not heroes for doing that. That's obedient. That's being faithful to the call of God in your life. God's calling us to Turkey, so we're going to go. And we have a one-year-old, and we're bringing her. They're not heroes for doing that. They're being faithful to God's call on their life. And his expectation for all of us is once we know what that thing is, we're going to begin to shape our life accordingly. And again, for some of us, it's a capacity issue that causes us to pull back. For some, it's a kind of a publicity issue or a public issue that causes us to pull back. We need to move through those things. If you trust that God is a good father and the things that he's called you to do, he has actually called you to do, then you can trust that ultimately that's the best life for you to live. Period. If you trust that he's a good father and the things that he's called you to do are truly from him, that that thing that you're feeling, it's truly from him, then you have to believe as a good father, he's going to lead you into the best possible lifestyle for you to live. Third thing, John didn't allow success to ruin him. He's got these massive crowds coming to him. He's the most popular guy on the scene. He's got the religious rock stars coming to him to see what he's doing. And this is what he says in Matthew, or excuse me, in John 3. So at some point, this is what comes up. Some guys come up to John and say, John, Rabbi, the man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, that's Jesus. Well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. You're losing popularity. You were here first. Now he's stealing all the people. To this, John said, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. 
The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. John is able to do that because his identity is not tied to his accomplishments. If your sense of identity is tied to your accomplishments, it can be very difficult for you to not allow success to ruin you. If your sense of identity is tied to your accomplishments, it's going to be very difficult, I would say impossible, to, for, to not allow success to ruin you. Success will come and it will ruin you because it's defining you. For those of us who tend to work too much, it could very easily be because what we're accomplishing at work, it's not just about work, it's about us. My identity is derived from how well I'm doing at work, so there's no such thing as working too much because it's not a thing that I do, it's who I am. And there's no such thing as you working too much for me because it's not what we're doing, you're contributing to who I am as well. John, did, John is able to fade into the background because he gets it. His identity is not tied to how many people are coming to be baptized by him. His identity is not tied to being the most popular religious guy on the circuit. His identity is not tied at all to popularity or to outward success. He says the same thing to the religious leaders. If you're trying to get in good with somebody, you don't call him a snake the first time you meet him. If you read later to Herod, who is the king, he calls him out on his behavior, winds up thrown in jail, and gets his head cut off later. John is not a people pleaser. But what he is, is he's very confident in who he is and in his calling. And he's okay with the results, however they happen to go. He's preaching this message, and for whatever reason, it's drawing thousands of people to him. The same message gets him thrown in jail. He doesn't change the message for the circumstances because his identity is not tied to accomplishments. He's just being faithful and obedient to God's call on his life. And when that brings outward success, that's great. He can handle it and he doesn't get a big head. People say, are you the prophet with a capital P who Moses talked about? No, I'm not. They say, are you Elijah who's coming again? He says, no, Jesus says he is. You read Matthew 11, Jesus says, John is the prophet. But John doesn't even recognize that about, doesn't recognize it about himself. He doesn't take that label. No, that's not me. Are you the Christ? No, that's not me. He never, when he's being successful, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not drawn into that to allow that to define him when he's thrown in jail. Doesn't change anything for him one way or the other. And for us, I think the takeaway is we can't let success, if our sense of identity is tied to accomplishment, outward accomplishment, success is going to ruin us. So what you can do, and I don't think this is just a trick. I think it's legitimate. What we need to do is we need to redefine success. That's what Jesus said. When the disciples come and say, tell us about who's the greatest, he doesn't say, don't try to be the greatest. He, doesn't, he says, the greatest is the one who serves. He just redefines it. When they come to him and talk, start talking about who can be first and who gets the best seat, he doesn't say, don't try to win. He doesn't say, don't try to be first. He redefines it. Well, actually, if you want to be first, then you need to be last. Because in the kingdom, that's where first is found at the back of the line. It's redefining greatness. And so for some of us, what we need to do is just a matter of redefining what it looks like to win. Nobody wants to be a loser. And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. It's just it's a redefinition of what it means to win. And that will help you divorce your sense of identity from accomplishments. And then success won't have the pull or the allure that it has in the past. 
God wants me to take care of my family, if you're a family person. Absolutely. Biblical, yes. For some of us, we define take care of our family as make as much money as possible. So, of course, you're going to say yes to every promotion and to every opportunity to work extra and all of that. Because in your mind, you're winning. You've defined success, taking care of your family, as making as much money as possible. And so you're doing that every time you say yes. If you redefine that, taking care of my family means I actually need to know their name. And we need to sit down and eat together every now and again. You can win by saying no. It's not that you begin to lose. It's you've redefined what it means to win. Yes, you've got to put food on the table. And you need to be emotionally connected. And you need to be spiritual leader. And you need to be physically present. Or however you want to define that, it's just a matter of shifting the terms. It's not about saying, well, I'm just going to be fine being a loser the rest of my life because I don't want success to ruin me. It's redefining what success is so that it's infused with the values of the kingdom and not the values of our broken and fallen world. Last, John knew his limits. He knew he prepares the way. Jesus is the way. He's the friend. Jesus is the bridegroom. He got all of that. And so he knew, again, it was easy for him to pull back when it was time to pull back. We don't have any evidence that John ever started a feeding program. We don't have any evidence that John started a healing ministry or casting demons out of people. There's no evidence that he did anything other than preach this one message, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, and then baptize people who responded to that message. That was his thing. That was the lane that he was supposed to run in. And for us, we need to take comfort and freedom in the fact that you you have a part to play, and it's extraordinarily significant, but it's just one part. You don't have to do my job. My responsibility is to do my job. It's not yours. You don't need to run my race. Just let me run mine, and you run yours. Encourage me in mine, but don't try to run it for me. There's freedom in that for us. We're all finite. Some of my five favorite words in the Bible. Mark 14, lady comes to Jesus. He's about to be uh, crucified. It's his last night. She anoints him with oil. All the disciples start griping. She could have sold the perfume and given the money to the poor. She could have done this. She could have done that. And he says she did what she could. He blesses her. She did what she could. That same word is spoken over us. All he's looking for you to do is do what you can. That's it. What can you do? That's what he's looking for from you. Not what can you do in your own flesh. It's what can you do in the spirit. But what can you do? You have a role to play. And it's very, very important. But it's, it's, it's limited. I can use that in that word. John got it. Jesus is the one who judges. Jesus is the one who saves. I, just, I preach this one message. You're thinking, listen, I'm a witness to the grace of God in this way. That's what I can do right now. Maybe at some point I can do something else, but right now I witness to the grace of God by having people to my house once a week. Listen, I witness to the grace of God because I made Cracker Jack. I made this movie, and that I'm a witness to the redemptive story of God, and that's what I can do right now. So it's what is it for you, recognizing that there are limits involved. This is um, Matthew 11. This is Jesus talking about John. So what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the market and calling out to others. We played the flute, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, you did not mourn. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her actions. 
John and Jesus preached the same message, and they did it in such radically different ways. What's more different than a funeral and a wedding? And they were both fine. They both were doing their thing. They were both doing their deal. They were both living out of who God called them to be. And the same thing is, is true for us. There are limits to what you can do, and I don't mean that to squash you, but to free you. One of the most freeing things in the world is to know where the fences are. Because then you can run as hard as you want within that fence and you don't have to worry about what's on the other side. Find the fences that God has set for you and run hard in that fence and do it according to who God has created you to be. Brandon and I are very different personality-wise. We may both be a witness to the same thing and he's going to do it really different than me. He's much more direct than I am. And so we could be saying the exact same message and it's going to come across completely differently, and neither one is better. If I try to be like him, I'm done. If he tries to be like me, it's not going to work. We each need to live out of the personality that God has given us. I'm more introverted, so I'm going to be that way. Some of you are more extroverted. You're going to be that way. It's not an excuse to not grow. It's permission to be who God has created you to be. If there's sin issues, then you need to change. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about personality here. Temperament. It's a recognition. There are limits. And within this thing that God has called me to do, whether somebody says, you're a funeral or you're a wedding, it doesn't matter. What matters is are you doing the thing that God has called you to according to who he's called you to be? Let's pray. God, my prayer for everyone in this room, I see Madeline over here in the seventh grade and Jimmy Drew over here who's not in the seventh grade anymore and my prayers for everybody on the spectrum who's in the room, God, that we would all know what you're calling us to. We would all know what our deal is. And, God, that we would do it in a way that would bring you the maximum amount of glory. God, that we would live life every day of purpose, of joy, and of fruitfulness. God, I pray all of those things for everyone in this room that we would not look back at some point and say, I just wasted X number of years, or what have I, no. God, the two things I maybe desire most is that the people in this room, one, would know the freedom of, of just hearing you say, you're doing what you can. And I'm proud of you for that. Take the pressure off. Do what you can. And God, that at the end, we would all hear you say, well done. That's what I was looking for. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to try this, and we'll see how it works. At 9 o'clock during worship, I was praying just.